0: No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
2: I have a strict no BS policy. Do you consent to that? I'm Dr. Shu, and I'm here to share my personal journey and medical expertise to help those suffering with mental health and addiction issues. Not with gentle handholding, but with my straightforward honesty. It's time to take control. No more excuses. Cut the bullshit. It's time for breaking through. And it starts now. Welcome to another episode of Cut the Bullshit, breaking through with Dr. Shu. I'm your host, Dr. Shu, And as usual, we're cutting through the bullshit today uh, to give you the tools on your recovery and your mental health journey. Today, we will be chatting with two folks, uh, one here in the studio and one by Zoom. Uh, we have Alexander Rodriguez um, from uh, the show On the Rocks, another podcast. And we have Frank King. Um, we'll be chatting about suicide prevention, triggers, and overcoming obstacles on your journey. Sounds deep and dark, doesn't it? Well, to lighten things up, Frank is the mental health comedian and former writer for The Tonight Show and comedian who speaks on suicide prevention and knows what the barrel of his gun tastes like. Lots to chat about there. Uh, so, you know, this week has been, uh been interesting, um, as they usually are, um, you know, I'm in the middle of some big moves in my life, um, physically and career wise. Um, in the past two weeks I've moved my, uh, my house in Hollywood and I've moved my house in San Diego. Um, and it's, it's been crazy. And, you know, for me, um, the first thing I always have to do, um, is, is my, my safe zone. In my, my safe space. And for me, that looks like, uh, making sure that my bedroom is put together my bedroom has to be put together. That's my safe zone. That's how I know that everything's going to be okay. That's my retreat. Um, and that's where I can get to, even though there's boxes and, and shit everywhere, my bedroom is the safe zone and, you know, big changes like that can bring up a lot of triggers for folks. Um, you know, and, and having your your support network available it, it is the best thing to help you during those situations. Um, when I'm in big changes and moves, I get my friends to come over um, just for shits and giggles. I, I wouldn't dare ask them to touch a box or, or move anything, but to, to keep the levity of the situation and, and provide some comic relief, just like Frank provides some comic relief. Um, so remember that, you know— I, have your support system, have your um, your circle ready, and and have those things um, available when you're making these big changes. It helps bring everything together. Uh, I'd like to introduce uh, my in-house guest, Alexander Rodriguez. Hello, hello, hello. How are you doing today? <laughs>
1: you know, I I'm great. We just we just had a, a great meal over at the Smokehouse. Oh yeah, and we got to talk about some real stuff. I'm really excited to talk. Um, on your show specifically, what I love about your show is that everybody's welcome. Um, you know, you don't just reach out to people going through sobriety; you reach out to people going on through through so many different aspects of their journey. That's right. Um, and you know, today's topic really interests me because I'm known as the funny guy. That's just what I am. I'm right. the life of the party. My podcast on the Rocks with Alexander. We drink with celebrities and we yuck it up. But there's this side to the entertainment industry um, that we get to hear more about, you know, especially with Robin Williams, uh, that there is this dark side for uh, comedians especially, that there is a serious depression issue and it's something that we're so afraid to talk about. Oh,
2: right. Absolutely. Um,
1: I know that I haven't really addressed it and so that's why being on today's show is, uh, is very interesting and very important.
2: Well, thank you so much, Alexander, for being here. And now I'm going to cut over to our special guest, Frank King. Frank was a writer for The Tonight Show with Jay Leno for 20 years. He's had two aortic valve replacements, a double bypass, a massive heart attack, three stints, and lived to joke about it all. I have to take a breath after that. Um, (laughs) So he truly is funny at heart. Uh, He's fought a lifetime battle with depression and thoughts of suicide, turning that long, dark journey of the soul into a TED Talk, a matter of laugh or death and sharing his insights with corporations, associations, government, and college audiences. He uses the life lessons from all the above, as well as lessons learned as a rather active consumer of healthcare, both mental and physical, to show how attendees can turn their messes and stresses into successes. Please welcome Mr. Frank King.
1: Hello, Frank
2: King. (laughs) Hey, guys. So, Frank, before we get to the nitty-gritty... How did you get into the world of comedy?
0: I told my first joke in the fourth grade. <laughs> oh, there you go. Kids laughed, teachers hysterical, and I thought, I'm going to be a comedian. Twelfth grade, I did a talent show. Nobody had ever done stand-up before at the talent show. It was 1975, kind of the beginning of the comedy boom. And by the time that Lena moved out to Los Angeles and Letterman, those guys. And I told my mama, I'm going to be a comedian. And she said, son, you're going to college first. I don't care what you do when you get done. You can be a goat herder for all I care, but you're going to be a goat herder <laughs> with a college degree. So I went to UNC Chapel Hill, got a couple of degrees, and then moved my high school and college sweetheart to San Diego to work for her father's insurance company, which is what she wanted me to do. Mm. And uh, we shouldn't have gotten married. We had nothing in common. But you know what they say, opposite the track. Exactly. Sometimes,
1: Frank, sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, did you just say she was pregnant? Yeah, since oh. she was
0: pregnant, I wasn't um yeah that's
2: that's a good thing
0: thank you yeah i know we actually never had any kids and the way it turned out i mean we were divorced within four years 11 months and 19 days but who's counting anyway um married (laughs) miserable going to church miserable not going to the comedy store there in la jolla where i thought i belonged you know doing a mic night and so uh, i realized i was suicidal and if i didn't change something and soon i was going to kill myself And so I thought, well, what the hell? I could quit my job, divorce my wife, try comedy. If it works great, if it doesn't, hell, I can still kill myself. That's the subject of my fourth TEDx talk called Suicide, The Secret of My Success, Dead Man Talking. Oh, and that suicide got me into comedy because I had nothing to lose. I I could put it all on one roll of the dice and hope for the best.
1: Well, I have to say, you know, stand-up comedy um, it's one of the most naked experiences that you can have because we know that audiences vary so much whether they've had too much to drink or you just have a bad audience and it's not necessarily anything that you've done but I think it's one of the hardest things. I I did it once and I almost wet my pants and I was like, this is just not for me. (laughs) And it's funny dealing with this kind of duality with, with your depression to be so confident to step on stage. I mean, that takes guts and that takes a certain energy and to know that this dichotomy of depression was going on behind the scenes you know that's something that the audience just never sees
0: yeah and for me actually i believe that the uh, major depressive disorder and something called chronic suicidal ideation that i have is simply the flip side of my comedic ability creativity imagination because the wiring is all the same i can teach you to write stand up i can teach you to perform it What I cannot teach you to do is process the incoming information the way my brain does to make it funny. Right. And I tell people who aren't comics, to go, have you ever been in a movie theater and there's a funny moment or you laugh out loud? And then when you stop laughing, you look around, you realize you're the only one laughing (laughs) because you process it differently than everybody else in the theater. That's what my life is like 24-7, 365. Right.
1: Now, Frank, your your style and your sense of humor—did that come from coming from a funny family, or this just instinctually came? Were you watching comedians as a kid on TV? Where did you kind of develop this uh, particular? I mean, you have you have a very certain style to to your comedy. Uh, no, it's
0: it's familial. Um, my depression and thoughts of suicide is something called generational depression and suicide runs in families. Right. My grandmother, my great aunt, my mother died by suicide. Um, comedy comic ability, sense of humor. Also, my sister's very funny. My mom was very funny. So it was just the way it, it's, you know, people go, tell me a little bit about yourself. Well, I'm a comedian. No, not what you do, who you are. Well, at the risk of being redundant, I'm a comedian. I'm, it's just the way I, you know, process the world. And so it's, uh, yeah, and people ask, which came first, the comedy or the depression? Well, they kind of came together uh, with the DNA package. Um, I did a talk called Mental with Benefits, The Evolutionary Advantages of Mental Illness. Because everybody I met with a mental illness who wasn't completely dysfunctional had some kind of superpower, you know, great artist or writer or musician or whatever. it can't be a coincidence. And so I said to the audience, you know, what if those of us with a mental illness are not living with a genetic mutation, but an amazing evolutionary adaptation? I said, look, I don't think I'm broken. I believe I was made this way. Right. And it's just, you know, it's just the flip side of my, you know, they're just two sides, the same coin.
2: Sure. Absolutely. You know, so you worked on The Tonight Show for 20 years with Jay Leno, Mm -hmm. which is, I mean, absolutely iconic. What was working on the show like?
0: Well, it started when he was a guest host, permanent guest host, and Johnny was very mercurial. He would come in on a Friday afternoon and tell the staff, I'm taking next week off. Well, that meant (laughs) Monday was Best of Carson, rerun, and Jay had four nights, four monologues, 18 jokes per monologue to come up with essentially over the weekend. So he started hiring road comics. because I was on the road. My wife and I left San Diego December 26, 1985. And we were on the road together for 2,629 nights in a row nonstop. Oh, my God. <laughs> Seven <laughs> years and change. Yeah we, wow. yeah, we worked with... And back then, they put you up in comedy condos. So we worked with and lived with Seinfeld and Dennis Miller and Foxworthy and Ron White and Rosie and Ellen and oh, you know, wow. they, Adam Sandler, Kevin James. Back when they were just comics. <laughs> and so... Leno started hiring road comics to write jokes on spec you know sign up independent contractor form right and then I was pumping in a dozen two dozen jokes a day when he needed them for filling in and then when he got the job for real he let a bunch of the contract labor go but he kept me and a couple other guys on to continue writing. Uh, and I had two jokes on his very first show when he took over that first night when he took over for Carson. Oh wow! I had two jokes in the monologue, which is my kind of the high point of my writing career.
1: What was it like hearing your jokes uh, for the first time on screen with coming out of Jay Leno's mouth? Uh, yeah. you, you obviously were watching it as as everybody else was. Oh yes,
0: um, I'm, I got a bit early, so I would. I mean, we traveled with a VCR and a fax machine. We traveled heavy. And I was, <laughs> oh yeah, back in the day, we moved in uh wherever we were. And uh you know, it's like kinda like a lottery. You know, you go to bed, you wake up next morning, you're you know, on the tape <coughs> and start the monologue. Well everybody's working with the same source material, the newspaper.
2: Yeah. Right.
0: So you hear the premise, he does the premise, and you're thinking, oh man, I wrote a joke on that. I wonder if my punchline's gonna be the you know, the one he chose. And what I would do is I would sometimes put something in the joke that was not actually correct. Like, uh, let's say the percentage quoted in the joke was 17% of whatever. I put 19%. So that that if he did the punchline and had 19% in it, I knew that was my joke. Uh, Ah, okay. Yeah, and there was one that he actually did. When you write with somebody like that, the idea is you try to, to write in their voice. Right. So people don't notice that somebody else perhaps wrote it. And there was one joke, and I cannot recall what it was, but he did it word- for word syllable for syllable (laughs) just once the rest of them were close but um and the technique i used one of the techniques i used to write jokes i would write down all the premises he had in the monologue the night the next morning i write down the premises well we know he likes the premise so what i would do is see if i couldn't come up with a better punchline or another punchline for the same premise which up my chances of getting it bought because he already likes the premise and uh, one that I remember is, um, yeah, you know, the uh, Swiss, um, <laughs> they open a, a condom factory in Switzerland. Uh, <laughs> do we really want to buy condoms from a country that makes uh, cheese holes in it? <laughs> and I thought, no, there's another joke there. So what I sent in, which he did, was, yeah, hey, you know, the Swiss, I got this condom factory, um, but you know the Swiss. Uh, it's not just a condom, it's a condom, it's a corkscrew, it's a screwdriver, little yeah. pair of scissors. So you knew you liked the premise. Yeah. <laughs> yeah the, the two I had on the Tonight Show, like the, the first show he did after Johnny left, uh, one was um, a guy got stung to death by bees in Texas. Yeah, a guy in Texas uh, said, suddenly death by uh, bees. And uh, it turned out they weren't killer bees. Uh, they were just ordinary honeybees upset with a Rodney King verdict. <laughs> oh, Lord. Yeah. Wow. Hot topic. Yeah, yeah, the other one was uh, Dan Quayle said that Murphy Brown, you guys remember the sitcom? Oh, yes, yes. of course. Yeah, she had a child out of wedlock on the series. Yep. That was part of the series. And he goes, uh, Dan Quayle said that Murphy Brown having a child out of wedlock you know, mock the importance of fathers. And then Quayle said, where would I have been without my dad? Well, the joke <laughs> cards itself, my guess, yeah. dad, my guess, in uh, Vietnam. And,
2: <laughs> <laughs> <you> know, <laughs> Oh boy!
1: You know, Frank. A lot of people don't realize. You know, the life of of a comedy writer. I'm I'm friends with a lot of current uh, sitcom writers and also on on comedy shows. It can be a very isolating kind of experience. Oh. You know, you think you're in the industry and that you're hanging out with the celebrities and you're hanging out with the host and it's all glitz and glamour. It it can be so isolating at times because you are shut off, frantically trying to write all these jokes, and then it gets played to an audience, but you don't reap that energy benefit like a performer does at the end of a performance. And the next day, it's the same thing in a writing room or on your own writing. And it can kind of create this weird kind of uh, cave in your mind, so to speak, where you forget how to really deal with people. And I would assume that that's um, a breeding ground for an increase in depression is that kind of isolation.
0: Yeah, although, you know, when the the word came down, you're gonna have to isolate, not go out and be among (laughs) people. A lot of myself and a lot of my mentally ill friends are like, oh, what? Oh, we have to stay home and avoid people. What a shame! Yeah, because uh, you know, I mean, it did. Some people with mental illness, I'm sure, suffered greatly. But, but here's the deal: um, I realized early on, March of 2020, that the self care plan and other techniques that I use as a person with depression and suicidality, simply to get out of bed in the morning, uh, yeah. are transferable uh, to neurotypicals and who've never been depressed before and are never had this kind of uncertainty in their life with a mental illness you wake up with an uncertainty every day so you've got to figure out ways to function and so i've done innumerable podcasts and and several paid keynotes on social distancing and staying saying, don't worry so much about your mentally ill friends uh because we got this it's it's, uh, I, I worry about the people who are, who are normal or neuronormal, and right. they find themselves depressed and they can't get out of bed. and They don't know why. And they have no idea how to fix this. And so that I've got a self-care plan. some other the techniques that I teach them. Absolutely. Simply be able to get out of bed no more.
2: So, you know, Frank, one of the things that I really do want to ask you is, um, what was your low point? Can you share your story?
0: Oh yeah. Um, I have something called major depressive disorder. Right. Uh, I, it, I'm, I've been most depressed at some of the best times in my life, which is odd. But that's just the best of the disorders. Right, exactly. It's generally not situational. Right. Uh, I always worried, what if I got really depressed and suicidal at the worst time in my life? And I found out. I had gone from comedy club comedy. I worked in radio for about a year and a half. I uh, took a number one morning show and drove it to number six. <laughs> you know a friend of mine said you didn't just drive into the ground you drove that thing into middle earth um, <laughs> yeah and, were, and, and the comedy club thing was ending you know though they were closing faster than they were opening yeah and my act had always been very clean so i'd started doing conventions and conferences the rubber chicken circuit after dinner after lunch making good money i mean really good money until oh seven, oh eight, when the recession hit and business dropped off 80%, frankly, overnight. And and my wife and I had to file a Chapter 7 bankruptcy. And that's when I learned what the barrel of my gun tastes like. Um, the suicidality is a three-legged stool. Social isolation is one. Right. You cross the barrier. You're willing to take your life is two. And the third thing is a burdensomeness. You feel like the world would be better off without you. Well, we filed bankruptcy. Lost everything. I had a million-dollar life insurance policy. So... I felt like a burden, you know, I was literally worth more dead than a lot
2: to my wife. Mm-hmm. Right. No, I get that. I get those feelings. Absolutely. Um, you know, for me, um, you know, I, I'm in recovery. I've, you know, I've dealt with a lot of the issues that I, that I had my, you know, trauma and, and anxiety and depression and things. And, you know, that moments, you know, the, the week before I ended up in rehab, that was my low point. And that was where, you know, that three-legged stool came out and I absolutely, you know, I, <clears throat> I, I felt that I was better off dead. I felt I was worth more dead to everyone around me. Um, and I felt like I was just a, a big ass burden to everyone. And cause everyone was hating on me. And I, you know, uh, at that point I, I was so drunk, I couldn't even understand why. Um, you know, and that was, that was it. I wanted to die. Like that was my, you know, that was my final thoughts. Um, you know, before really getting on the airplane and going to rehab
0: well and i i had sold insurance as i mentioned early in my career after college and so i knew that my life insurance policy had a 24-month suicide clause. yeah but i didn't know i couldn't remember how long i'd had it so i had to call my insurance agent we're chatting about other things and he knows i'm struggling financially and i said to him hey graham um how long have i had those life insurance policies he, he goes i don't know i'll check you hear him clacking away on the computer keys. He comes back and he says, 22 months and no, don't do it. Because he had had that conversation half a dozen times and I think four out of the six times he delivered a check to the beneficiary. Oh, wow. wow. Yeah. Well, the good news is my policy, I had 22 months. I had to wait two months to kill myself. But because I have chronic suicidal ideation, meaning I can do it at any time. Right. I thought, sure, I can wait two months and I'll wait two months in a day just to be sure. Risen <laughs> by a
2: day, right? Yeah.
0: Um, so fortunately, by the 61st day, I don't recall thinking, "Oh, today's a day." I I don't even remember when the thought crossed my mind. We've gotten past 60 days because the ban- bankruptcy went through, and the phone calls stopped. You right. know, we began to rebuild, and with the Chapter 7, a 10 year process.
2: Yep.
0: Yeah, we started re- rebuilding our credit right away. I mean, my, my credit scores were in the mid 300s. Now they're back up. Bumping up against eight hundred, thank the Lord. Wow. Oh, nice. Yeah, no credit card debt. We're probably going to pay off the mortgage, and uh, we've already paid a third of it. We just got the, the refi in September, so we reorganized. Nice. And right. survived that last recession, the, the benefit of going through a recession like that, and coming out the other end alive, is that we were prepared for this one.
2: <laughs> yeah, you know, we for shrunk
0: sure. our life down to you know, right. we're living small, I guess, so that so we could be. Somewhat recession-proof, and then and then between the you know the paying gig workers unemployment, which is amazing, uh <laughs> and I started I focused on my TEDx coaching. I had about five five or six TEDx coaching clients in March of twenty twenty, and I just changed all my marketing to focus on that. And now I've got twenty five TEDx coaching. Clients. Oh, great! That's awesome. Yeah, so that made that made that difference as well.
1: Uh, Frank, you know, in the entertainment industry, when you're looking to get hired, and especially if you're on camera or or in in the writing room, it's so careful as to what kind of image you put out there. We know it's a lot of smoke and mirrors. Uh, You had to come out in in, uh, a sense um, on your own, coming out and being a speaker and talking about suicide prevention in your own experience – Left you very vulnerable in terms of, did you ever have a thought that, hey, this might affect my mainstream writing career or getting booked on a, another show? Did you have any of that kind of pressure or feelings?
0: No. Uh, and I didn't come out as depressed and suicidal until I did that first TEDx talk.
1: Mm, okay.
0: Nobody knew. Yeah. Um, my wife <laughs> getting ready to play it when it posted on YouTube. I said, hold on. I want to tell you about half a dozen things you don't know before you hear it from, you know, on the video. Wow. Well wow. and, and the reason I did it TEDx was I've been a comic for all those years. And so for meeting planners and so forth, speakers bureaus, I was a funny guy. So I had to I had to prove that I wasn't simply a funny guy but a, a speaker who was funny. Right. And so I came out and I mean it's that first talk. I mean, I talked about how at four years old my mother and I discovered my great aunt and it's it's horror movie gruesome. Oh wow. Um, it's it's I, I don't often do it on stage because it's just but in that first TEDx, that's how I got it. I went up to Vancouver, British Columbia to audition because I got the audition. I right. fly up, my own dime. And they wanted five minutes of the talk, either an overview or a slice. I thought I'd give them a slice. So I talk about my mother finding my grandmother had passed away. And then my great aunt, my mother couldn't reach her on the phone, got worried. So she bundled me into the car at four years old. We drove over to her house, let ourselves in. And it's, you know, cue the scary music
1: and at Um, four years old i I can't even imagine what that does uh, to your psyche and growing up i mean that's uh that image just must have been ingrained in your memory
0: if you'd like to hear the story
1: well i mean sure absolutely
0: well warn your viewers listeners that this is it may trigger somebody because we're going to cover some stuff that will raise strong emotions for people my mother right. and I go in the house, and it was it was it was it was horror movie um, sort of classic writing. We're walking around the house; nothing's out of place. We get to the kitchen; everything that should have been in the refrigerator—the old lock type refrigerator, uh-huh. the kind with a latch, yeah,
2: right, magnets,
0: yeah—all yeah. that stuff, butter, milk, eggs, cheese—is on the counter. Oh, so I'm holding on to my mother's skirt. What we don't know is—is is my great aunt had crawled into the refrigerator to end her life at some point she had she had changed her mind and tried to claw her way out oh my god yeah oh and so as i'm holding on my mother's skirt my mother swings the door open my great aunt falls out and pins me to the floor we're face to face her face in that last moment of terror you know fingernails broken bloody bleeding um and i screamed for
2: days apparently Oh, yeah. I mean, I can only imagine. My God.
1: So coming from a family history of this kind of severe depression, um, I know things have changed. And now we are actually having conversations with our family members about suicidal thoughts. And back then, you just didn't deal. In my family, we also have generational um, d- depression. Oh, no. But having such a severe kind of interaction at a young age, did your family do any preventative care at a young age for you?
2: No. I would imagine
1: back then that wasn't a thing. Like- no.
0: No, back then, in my mother's generation, what they did was, my mother prayed that she said she'd give up 10 years of her life if I could forget it. And I did. I must have compartmentalized it somehow. Right. Well, that's- And so the adults came up with a myth. If Frank ever asked about that day, you are to tell him that when I swung the refrigerator door open, your great, the great, her great aunt, her aunt, was sitting in the refrigerator, with her hands folded in prayer, looking very serene. Oh, oh wow. So, yeah. So in 2012, I was recant- re- recounting that story for a cousin of mine who's 10 years older, And he, I mean, he was well aware of all that went on. And I said, you know, open the door. She was sitting there with her hands folded. In- and <laughs> and he goes, serene my ass. That <laughs> oh, fell out and pinned you to the floor. <laughs> and, whatever I've been holding all that back yeah just broke away and I, all of a sudden i'm getting chills uh hair standing up all over my body i'm back there again face to face with somebody said to me you ever been impacted by a suicide yeah the old bitch fell out on
2: me. <laughs> I <don't know. laughs> so i mean what you know frank what what do you do to to get through that like how how have you processed that now since i came out later and, and and what do you do to to make sense of that and process it and get through it?
0: Well, again, back to a self care plan. Um, I've never had any therapy for that particular incident because I think because it, there was such a great distance between time it happened and the time it came back to me. Okay. You know, I, I had distance. You know, tried to do right. most time, with comedy. Um, and I use that comedy in my first TEDx. My grandmother killed herself with an old gas stove. She blew out the pilot light. Oh. And. And my my great aunt used a refrigerator. I said to the TEDx audience, what is it with my family and major appliances? Right. You know, I drive past Sears, I get choked <laughs> up. Oh. Yeah. Oh, yeah. oh, man, it's dark. When I was doing the research for the TED, I thought, well, I'll see how other people handle the topic of suicide in a TED talk. So I went on TED, typed suicide in the search box, figuring to would be, you know, probably dozens, if not hundreds of yeah. Uh, Three talks on suicide. Three out of, the, out of the hundreds of thousands of talks. Wow. And I said this to the audience, and then it hit me. Well, duh. If you're really good at suicide, you're probably not going to be recording a TED talk.
1: Right. Uh, yeah, exactly. Well, it mean, yeah, you know. that, that makes sense. Yeah,
0: so I'm, I'm, I'm an extremely positive person. Uh, the chronic suicidal ideation, I don't know if you guys are familiar, mm-hmm. uh, is it's a coping mechanism. Right. It's just the way my brain works. Uh, a couple of years ago, my car broke down. I had three thoughts get it fixed, buy a new one, or I could just kill myself. It's always option C on the menu.
2: Right. Um, Absolutely. And,
0: yeah, it's just always there. And so it's not really a serious thought. Um, or I'm sitting in a train, you know, a railroad crossing, and the, the, the arms are coming down, the lights are flashing, the train's coming, and I'm looking down the track doing the math trying to figure out you know <laughs> how would I would have to back up to go through the first crossing guard and not not through the second one. Because I don't want to find myself on the other side of the tracks with two two broken pieces of equipment out of the railroad for. Right. And a friend of mine is horrified. I go, it's just a math problem. Like, two trains leave Chicago. What's the big deal? <laughs> um, but that's the way, you know, the, the right. that, that that condition. And here's the good news. Every time I've spoken since 2014, there's been somebody in the audience who has chronic suicidal ideation. Oh. They don't know it has a name. They think they're some kind of freak and all alone. And when right. I say... Get it fixed, buy a new one, and I could just kill myself. A young woman came up at a college show. She goes, I, I enjoyed your keynote, but it made me weep. I didn't make you weep. She goes, you know, your story about the car, get it fixed, buy a new one, or just kill yourself. I've been having those thoughts all my life. Yep. I had no idea that it had a name, that it was a thing. I thought I was a freak and completely alone. And when I heard you say that out loud, I realized for the first time in my life, I am not in fact alone and I
2: wept. Wow. Yeah. So, Frank, what do your fans tell you the most um
0: that that the to see a guy on stage is not a clinician talking about things that guys don't normally talk about right um emotional things, mental things um that vulnerability is extremely powerful, and what um what they hire me for most often is, they tell me this, we just brought you in here to start the conversation on suicide. Right. Because I discovered early on, even though one person in the U.S. dies by suicide every nine minutes, mm-hmm. meaning 146 a day, meaning that's one 737 going into the ground like a lawn dart every day. Right. Nobody talks about it unless you bring it up, and then everybody's got a story. And by bringing it up and telling my story and getting a little choked up, it gives people in the audience permission to give voice to their experiences and feelings surrounding depression about suicide without recrimination i'm giving them cover to come out
1: right exactly
0: yeah which <laughs> is very therapeutic to me
1: you know i want to ask from from the outside you know both both of you dealing with these kind of suicidal uh, times in your life as a kid. I was always taught that suicide is such a dark, ugly thing. I mean, even the Catholic Church wouldn't let you get buried in a, or even have a service in church if you committed suicide because it was considered right. one of the most heinous things that you could do. And so there was the stigma, but a statement that always circles in my mind is how selfish does somebody have to do to commit suicide? And I want to know, especially, Frank, you being at that moment in your life, um, what do you say to a statement like that? How can somebody from the outside like me understand somebody's psyche at that point in time?
0: Well, and Doctor Shu um, spoke of it, and I talked about it earlier. It's that sense of burdensomeness. So, from the outside right. looking in, it seems very selfish. Mm-hmm. But uh, the good doctor will tell you, I'll bet, and I'll tell you that because people say, "You know, would not w- what were you thinking about the people you're leaving behind?" Oh, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. I thought, and Doctor Shu thought they'd be better the off leaving behind. We, it's almost a selfless act, irrational but selfless, and right. that you firmly believe. <laughs> They
2: will be better off without you. Right, almost like martyrdom in a way. Like yes, exactly. You know, and you know, offering myself would make everything better for everyone else.
0: Yes. Every now and then, somebody say, "There's no solution for that," and I go, "Yeah, there is, but you're not going to like it." Right. Uh, but that's why, yeah. And it's nothing. Another, another thing you hear is it's an act of cowardice <laughs> because it looks like you're bailing out, leaving leaving everything behind for other people to clean up. But. i'm not sure if you're a coward that you can take a nickel-plated ruger 38 loaded with federal hydroshock hollow points pull the hammer back and slip that in your mouth right it's 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 something i mean just guts to you know to pull the trigger fortunately i didn't spoiler alert
2: so you know i growing up um you know my parents i was i think i was like seven when my parents moved into their new house and um the neighbor boy was invited over for dinner and he was a few years older than myself and right in the middle of dinner he was like oh so do you know what happened in the basement here and my parents were like shut up shut up shut up he doesn't know and he obviously missed the cue, and he went on the story about how the previous owner had shot himself in the basement, and, um, you know, he, he had cancer, and he was actually setting it up to kill his wife first, and then him. Ooh. Um, Yeah, and the the trigger was a hairpin trigger, and it went off and just shot him. Um, but yeah, I will never forget um, uh, he, learning of that. You know, at, at seven years old, like you know. I, you really sort of don't understand it. Um, and i also never forget my mom going down into the basement after we moved in uh, and turning on lights and putting up spotlights because she was going to clean and there was still oh. stuff there. Um, the The cleaning company that was hired didn't really do it. And, and the mm. wife was so old that, you know, she didn't, never went down the stairs to see.
1: Why do so many suicide victims choose such a violent way to go?
2: Well, actually, um,
0: women attempt three times as often as men. Right. But men tend to complete, which, by the way, is the current—that's the you know the verbiage right. mental health people use—not uh, commit, but complete or or die by suicide. Um, men tend to complete because they use a firearm. Right. You know, there's not much coming back. If I pulled the trigger with loaded federal hydroshock hollow points.
2: Right. <laughs> Yeah, the, I had, yeah, I yeah, those. no coming back from that. I used to have those in my forty five. So yeah, oh, boy. <laughs> well, and you know there are
0: in the United States, especially there, you know the the sheer number of weapons, guns, right? And well, depending on what state you live in, relatively easy to get your hands on one. So
1: yeah, you know, uh, again, being in in the entertainment uh, business, I have a number of friends who suffer from depression, and when People were talking about this around me. My natural instinct was like, oh, you know, you're feeling depressed. You know, let's rent a movie. I'm going to come over with pizza and I'm going to get you in a good mood or I'll tell you some jokes and using comedy. I I, I was and still am so unaware as to uh, what depression really is. What can somebody uh, on the outside do to help or be there or even better understand this disease?
0: Well, first thing people ask me all the time, I've got a friend with depression. What should I say to them? I say, well, first of all, don't say anything. Just listen. Just co-sign whatever bullshit they're waiting for. Because that's what I do. I tell, I put my phone number, my cell number up on the screen every every keynote. Right. And I say, look, if you're suicidal, call the hotline. If you're just having a bad day, call a crazy person. Here's my cell. <laughs> yeah. sure, I'm going to listen non-judgmentally. I'm not going to do what they call it, what they what they call in the mental health business should all over you. You should do this and you should do that. You should try fish oil. Um,
2: <laughs>
0: the trick is is spotting depression here's a, Here's the good. One. Eight out of ten people who are suicidal are ambivalent. right. Nine out of ten give hints in the last week leading up to the attempt, which tells me that the vast majority of people who are thinking about it want somebody to notice something and interrupt. The catch is. Most people have no idea what depression looks like or what thoughts of suicide. What are the hints? What are the, you know, and here's three for depression. If they have trouble getting up in the morning, but they rally in the afternoon. If they either eat too much or can't eat, sleep too much or can't sleep. And here's a big one. If they let their personal hygiene go, Mm. you know, hair's a little dirty, clothes are kind of not quite so clean. It's probably because they can't get out of bed in the morning to run a little wash and get in the shower. Uh, What do you say to somebody? Who's depressed? Well, here's what you don't say. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Turn that frown upside down. Have you
1: tried fish oil? Um, <laughs> Let me tell you about say, meditation. I mean, yeah, meditation, <laughs> yoga. Um, Go for a jog.
0: Yeah, well, and somebody... Have you is, thought about
2: going to the gym? Yeah.
0: Yeah. Choose joy. Unless you're talking about dishwashing liquid. How about you know, sex?
2: And, yeah, well, you know,
0: uh, even with somebody. Um <laughs> <laughs> that's the only ted talk i ever got a standing ovation for it was called mental health and the orgasm treat your depression single-handed
2: oh that sounds fabulous
0: I got and i got a um and the, the joke that got me the standing ovation was and my wife hated it so don't do it i go no it's gonna kill i said um do you, in the middle in the middle of the talk apropos of nothing i just stopped and went do you guys know why they call an orgasm an orgasm and they're looking at me like no. And I said, Because nobody can spell
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: Oh, that that's perfect. So
1: um i'd like to tell you you know again, and this is what I love about your show dr Shu is you know i don 't necessarily categorize myself or subscribe to all of the topics, but when you start talking about this like i 've been able to talk to you, Frank, and you, Dr. Shu, you start reflecting on your own life and how it fits mm. into your own life, whether i 'm probably really? not clinically depressed, but um, this makes sense in my own life and, and people around me. Uh, one of the questions I have is if you know it 's in your family. Now that we're talking about it and there is medical help and, um, and you know, therapy, how would you deal with somebody very young, such as four, going through a traumatic experience? How would you kind of set up that preventative care or how would you even start that process so that it is not um, a moment of suicide down the line?
0: Yeah, because if you're that close to suicide um, and you already are hardwired for depression about suicide, the chances of you taking your life or at least attempting it go up. Right. So what what should happen today is even at four, should begin some extremely intensive therapy to, to help help the child process what they've seen.
2: Right. You know, exactly age
0: appropriate. Yep. And and continue, um, you know, through elementary school, probably into middle school, maybe into high school. Because, you know, if you treat those things early, the long term outcomes are far better.
2: Oh yeah, absolutely. You know, getting ahead of that. Yeah, (laughs) you know, and that's you know, Frank. So that's something. You know, I I think you and I sort of come from that that generation of we just push it in and bury it and pump it down (laughs) and box it up and put five hundred cinder blocks on top of it so it doesn't come back out, and then all of a sudden the cinder blocks bust and it comes back out at the weirdest time and you know yeah, and, your cousin and,
0: informed you
2: well yeah <laughs> or you know or the neighbor boy or you know yeah any of those situations um you know or you're sitting drunk in a bar and crying and things come out so you know i mean that, that's that's all you know by by getting ahead of it by starting that care early um in in having open dialogue like we are doing here tonight those are the things that, you know, bring the awareness up, bring, um, you know, people to the table and, you know, and hopefully bust the stigma around mental health and, and all the the things associated with it, the the quack therapists and, you know, the, the voodoo practitioners of psychology and all those things.
0: Um, well, and, you know. and we're doing something that doesn't happen near as often as it should, uh, Especially in the U.S., right? Uh, three guys sitting around talking about <laughs> things that matter, <laughs> right? Uh, because it's called uh, uh, the psychological term is toxic masculinity. Oh yes, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, this, the term I the term I was taught growing up in the South is a uh, big boys don't cry. Exactly Yep. Um,
2: and
0: and you know, men don't take care of themselves mentally. Uh, that's why two co-authors and I have written a series of four books on men's mental health um, because. Because of, because of that, because um, it's, they're like chicken soup for the soul. Twelve guys in each book; each one has an issue, and then they 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 tell how they are coping. Because it turns out men tend to take advice from men.
2: Oh yeah, yes, absolutely. Of course.
0: Yeah, I've said it many times. If my wife gave me a Nobel Prize winning idea, I would poo poo it. a <laughs> mailman told me the same thing. You know, I'm buying my tickets to go collect the hardware. Right. Um, yeah. So. Um, Again, toxic masculinity. And here's the thing: eight out of ten people who die by suicide in the U.S. right now are men. Um, most of them age forty-five to fifty-four wow. Uh, wow. and Caucasian. Yeah. Yep. Um, it's, but men don't take care of themselves physically either. They wait too long for the PSA test, colonoscopy, or well, yeah. the testicles. You know, it's just the way we're wired. And so, part of my job is to give them men permission. And it's happened. I've gone in. I went into a big manufacturing plant. I did two keynotes. It was, it was their safety day. They decided to make mental health a focus. Great idea. And after I left, I talked to the meeting planner a couple months later. She goes, Frank, you have no idea the impact. We had men coming into the um, – they had nurses on staff because it was a manufacturing plant where you could get injured. Right. Um, and you don't, have no idea. The men that came in afterwards, we had no idea. They'd never said a word about it until you showed up and told your story. And apparently gave them permission to step forward and ask for help.
2: Exactly. So, yeah, that's no, the that's the power
0: of sharing.
2: That's absolutely one of the biggest things is, you know, bringing a voice um, and giving that permission. So, Frank, one of the things that we do on the show is I like to give my listeners homework. Um, and, you know, this week's homework is, that I want you to, to implement in your life is. Talk to someone in your support group. We know it's tough. We know it's hard. But your circle, your um, friends, and have an open dialogue about any issues that that you're going through. Talk to somebody else. Um, and I want you guys to let me know how that goes. Um, you know, you can you can go to my Instagram. You can go to my website. Uh, and you can email me at Doctor That's D R S H O E at Shoe dot com. And I I went in. I, I want to know how that went for you. Um, you know, we're hoping that that Frank and I and and Alexander have been able to give you some voice to open up and and be honest with somebody that's close to you that you can have an open dialogue with and and look at, you know, look at possible issues or or things that may be you know coming up for you. Um, you know. Again, back to this week of changes for me. Um, you know, I've had to I've had to come to the table, and I've had to open up to my friends and talk to my friends about things that you know I I feel overwhelmed. I feel, you know, different different you know scenarios, and being able to express that and talk about it.
1: Dr. Shu, I love your, your tough love homework. because uh, it helps you <laughs> with the week. So in talking about suicide prevention, at what point should somebody be concerned enough to actually open that conversation with a friend or a loved one? At at like what's the biggest red flag when it becomes that, hey, I'm just going through a tough time, to it being, hey, this is something you really should pay attention to?
0: Well again. Um, people will say, you know, he, he died by suicide and never gave a hint, had no idea. How come right. I didn't notice anything? Well, because you didn't know what to look for. Yeah. Here's some things you can, you can look for, you know, if they're not forthcoming about their suicide out. Right. Um, if they, um, are collecting the means, that's an obvious one to die by suicide, whether they're stockpiling medication or buying firearms. If they're getting their affairs in order. If they are giving away prized possessions, because they want to make sure that prized possessions go to the people they want them to go to when they're gone. Uh, and if you give away a pet, that's top of the pyramid on prized possessions. Oh, wow. uh, they, They're constantly Googling death and dying or death and dying appears as a theme in their artwork, their music, their writing. Uh, here's a counterintuitive one that's very dangerous. They've been depressed for a long time and you know this. And all of a sudden, they're happy beyond measure for no apparent reason. Well, you're relieved because they're finally happy. The problem is they may be happy because they've chosen time, place, and method. Right, they have a plan. And a lot of people don't realize that suicide isn't so much about killing yourself most often. It's, It's more about killing the pain, ending the pain. Right. And so if they've chosen time, place, and method, then they know the pain is finite i'm I'm speaking in colorado at a i'm um, doing a comedy show to raise money for a nationalized mental illness chapter and the executive director had some financial issues personal and professional and he planned his time place method down to the smallest detail wow that was the only joy he had at the time was making plans right and so yeah it's it's, it's all about somebody said to me on a ship one time about substance abuse disorder he goes Frank, you know the connection between suicide and you know addiction. Uh, and I said, "No. I mean, I know the obvious answer, but he goes, "Well, it's it, in suicide and in a substance uh, you know use disorder, it's all about killing the pain.
2: right, exactly. So yep, killing the pain, uh, self-medicating, all those things. Um, yeah, And, there's something called uh, passive
0: suicidality as well. If you hear somebody say, "You know, I'd never kill myself." But if I didn't wake up tomorrow morning, that'd be okay. And a lot of kids you hear say, you know what, when I was a child, I used to go to bed and pray that God took me during the night.
1: Yep. Yeah. yeah. If I die before I, uh, if I were to die before I should wake. God, how, how maudlin, how awful. That,
2: yeah. I had to so, say that yeah. prayer every night. I well, I, I
1: little... said it too. I guess I'd never really listened or paid attention. Yeah.
0: Yeah, you know, it's, there's a lot of those, you know. If they, you know, the cradle will rock, the baby will fall, down will come cradle, baby and all. I'm
1: like, what?
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, well Frank, uh I want to thank you uh absolutely for being on on the show tonight. Um I want to thank you for bringing uh awareness to uh to to suicide um and suicide prevention. Thank you for all the work that you do. Your TED talks um and, and just just being a great person frank um
0: thank you and here's why your homework is so important Uh, in our books we made them look like automobile owners man in hopes that guys would pick them up right and one and and in the beginning book it's like a basic man and they say that you need to surround yourself with people you know love and trust essentially a pit crew like in a nascar race
2: oh that's a good example i like that
0: yeah the, the you know you don't when, you, when you're in the NASCAR race and the wheels are starting to come off, it's not the time to hire a pit crew. <laughs>
2: <laughs> That's true.
0: Yeah, you need them so they know what you're going through. Um, and I have people like that in my life. My workout partner, I can tell it. You know, ask me how yeah. I'm doing and I can tell them, you yeah. know, Can I leave you with a funny story about that, by the
2: Absolutely. way? Absolutely. Go for it. Okay.
0: Um, I don't know if other mentally ill people feel this way, but every now and then somebody will ask me how I'm doing and I want to tell and and if I've been working really hard all day, I did two, three hours suicide prevention CE things, continuing right. education, mm-hmm. and I'm exhausted. I get in the Uber, nice young man behind the wheel, and our eyes lock in the rearview mirror, and he asked me, how you doing? And I thought, you know what, I'm going to tell. So I said to him, I'm depressed and suicidal, how about you? <laughs> and there's this long pause, and he goes, what am I supposed to say to that? I said, do you really want to know? He goes, yeah, you're supposed to say, do I have a plan? He's supposed to ask me, do I have a plan? So he thought about that for a second and our eyes were still eyes locked in the rearview mirror and he goes uh do you have a plan and then it hit him i think and he goes like this does it involve uber
2: (laughs) (laughs) you know you you bring up a great point i mean don't I would think that Uber would try and do, you know, the the rideshare companies like that would try and do a little bit of communication um, or training. Because you never know what you're... Because, I mean, people get into these things, you know, and there's, you know, everyone's got issues and, you know, people, and sure, yeah.
0: Yeah. uh, Take me to the the Golden Gate Bridge. Right. What part of the bridge? Somewhere in the middle.
2: Yeah. Just let me out. I'll jump out in the middle. Yeah. (laughs) I'm right here. Give me a five-star rating. (laughs) Can you leave me a tip before you do? Uh, Well, Frank, (laughs) thank you so much again. And, you know, this has been another episode of Cut the Bullshit, Breaking Through with Dr. Shu. Here are my final thoughts. Suicide has affected a lot of people. Um, And, you know, the the awareness surrounding it needs to be brought up. It needs to be talked about. We need to understand... um, how our our fellows are doing. Um, And that's human decency. And that is caring about the people around us. So make sure that you're part of someone's circle and that you're part of a circle. Um, Get that support system. As Frank said, that pit crew. And, you know, I will see you all next week. Um, Please rate, review, and subscribe to us on every major podcast platform. Follow me on Instagram at underscore doctor. That's D O C T O R dot shoe s-h-o-e underscore and visit us at breaking with with articles and my blog you'll also sign you can also sign up for sessions there um get more information on my private practice um as well as the affiliations of the different centers that i work with in the la and san diego areas um i again thank you to our guest frank king uh tell them where they can find and follow you
0: uh the mental health and if you go there and put an email address in i'm i'm narrating the books for audible oh great And the first one is there i had my editor create an mp3 that i can just give away so if you put in an email address you can get the unabridged first volume of guts grit and the grind a mental mechanics manual
2: and i'm narrating excellent frank all right well thank you and that'll do it for for this week's show uh remember folks It's your journey, so live it.